If you would, please turn with me to Titus chapter 1. And this morning we are going to read verses 4 to 9. And this will probably be in two parts. We're really going to focus in on verses 4 to 6 this morning of God's holy word. Have you ever heard the statement that I don't like organized religion? I don't care for organized religion. It's one reason why people would say they don't go to church, because they don't like organized religion. And you wonder sometimes, what exactly do they mean by that? What do they mean, organized religion? And I believe, just by those that have said it, that generally it's just a statement to say, I don't like people being over me to hold me accountable and tell me how to live. Really what it comes down to. They don't like to be held accountable. They want to be comfortable in the way that they live. They don't want others in their life uh, having any, any advice for them. And they say things like, you know, I live my own life. No one has the right to judge me or to tell me how to live. And really what they're saying is I want a little bit of Christianity to feel religious enough but I want to remain comfortable and I have no desire for someone else to tell me what I ought to be doing. Is it any wonder with that kind of an attitude and that kind of a perception of the church that in the last couple of decades we've had the particular movements that we had? Whether it's the emerging church or the emergent church or the seeker church or any of these other movements that tend to water down gospel truth. And they water down the accountability factor that should be within a local congregation. They water down the necessity of biblical leadership. And that leadership holding the congregation accountable as well as themselves. There was a, uh, a friend of mine who was taking a membership class at a local area church. And it asked a question about if someone was in church leadership because they wanted to understand the church leadership and its role and its seeking after holiness and righteousness, all of this, had asked the, the pastor, well, what happens if you have one who is in your leadership who ends up getting plastered on a Saturday night, comes into church on Sunday and is still drunk with a hangover or something along that line? And the answer that this pastor gave was, well, I'm not the sin police. And I'm sure they would feel bad enough about the whole situation without me having to say anything. Is this the better way? Is this what's more appealing to culture? And I'm sure it is. That's why you have big churches that follow that kind of teaching and that kind of watering down of God's truth. Another example, uh, and some of you may have seen it, I don't know, on social media this past week, there was a lady apparently whose post is going viral because she had posted this picture of this letter that the leadership in her church had sent to her. And it was addressing the fact that she had not been attending church. 
And it even expressed that there, this was out of genuine concern and love for her, that you have not been you know, attending church. And we were finding that not only have you not been attending church, but you think that you don't need to be attending church any longer. And then it addressed also that the person who had stopped attending has, quote, a living arrangement that is not biblical. Whatever that entails. Maybe she's living with her boyfriend. I don't know. I don't know what that defines to be, but that would seem to maybe be in view there. And there were numerous people commenting on this particular uh, post saying, well, it's no wonder she don't go there. Look at the way that they're judging her. Look at the way that they're saying this to her. And all the while you think to yourself, this is this is what leadership is supposed to do. This is this is how leadership is, is to to lead the church and to lead the church in righteousness and holiness of the truth to be accountable to you and for the church to be accountable to them. And that is absolutely rejected by so many today. How dare you tell me how I ought to live? How dare you tell me my living arrangement is not biblical or that it is wrong if it feels right to me? There is accountability within a church and it is to be done out of love. It is to be done with a genuine concern for those that are within the congregation and God's truths are, are to be taught. God's truths are to be applied. And how is God determined to do this? How is he determined to carry this out and to maintain the purity of the body of Christ? And as we'll see today, he's determined to do that through faithful shepherds given to the local church. And so this morning we are looking at the office of elder. And as Paul had went over uh, a week ago Wednesday with you about uh, is, is eldership biblical? And he went through numerous passages of scripture establishing that this is indeed the, the, the truth of scripture within the New Testament. That elders are to be appointed. And as we'll see, it is a plurality of elders. And we're going to continue some of the thoughts that he had shared with you. And we're going to continue some of those today. As well as to begin expounding the characteristics of the one who aspires to the office of elder. So we're going to be looking at why we need elders. And what is the process of establishing elders within the local church. And the character of the one who aspires to elder. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Titus chapter 1. We're reading verses 4 to 9. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable. 
loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word. I thank you for our time together that we may be taught from your word by our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would help us this day to understand your word as best as we can, that the Spirit of God would open our hearts and minds, not only to desire what we read here, but to seek to apply it as best as we can. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray indeed that Christ would teach us today and that you would bless the preaching of your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so last Lord's Day, <clears throat> Justin was visiting with us, but the previous Sunday, uh, Jason had began into this book, covering the first three verses of Paul's ministry, his ministry to the elect of God. He's writing now to Titus. He's writing to Titus, and he gives Titus this introduction that he usually gives within his epistles. And this is important to, to recognize what he refers to, uh, what he re how he refers to Titus, rather, because this is really going to help... Our, I pray it does help give us a greater understanding of the need for a plurality of elders. It is just a common greeting, but it does establish some truths for us. So Paul begins in verse four to say that this is to Titus. This is to Titus, his true child in the faith. This is demonstrating this closeness that he has with Titus, this love that he has for him, this care that he has, the concern that he has as a spiritual father to Titus. He has left Titus in Crete. At some point, he and Titus on their missionary journey had made their way to Crete. And he has established churches there, preaching the gospel. People are converted. And so he leaves Titus there in order to begin the discipling. Titus is one who you could say is an imitator of Paul. As he learned from Paul. Paul was his spiritual father. Now, something to point out from the very beginning. Is though Titus himself is very equipped to handle the instructions that Paul has given him. To continue the discipleship. To continue the pastoring of the churches that are in the area. Paul doesn't say, since you are so good at this. I want you to just continue doing your work. Instead, he says, I told you this before, establish elders in every city. The fact that Paul tells Titus to establish elders in the city is an indication that it's not intended to be just one man. It is not intended to be one man governing a church. It is supposed to be a plurality of men. So we'll get into more of that, but I want you I want to bring that to your attention there in verse four. 
Though, again, Titus is, is a spiritual child of Paul. He's equipped to do the work. He's, he's gifted to do the work. Paul is still insistent that he establish a plurality of men. But we'll get to that. First, I want you to see this. I want you to see in verse 5 the need for elders. Why do we need them? What is the point of having elders? Well, he, he says that elders are to be appointed in every city. Now, the elders are those who are going to continue the ministry of the apostles. That's why they're there. Because the office of apostle is going to cease. Who's going to carry on the church? Who's going to carry on the guidance and the leading and all of that? And so Paul says, establish elders. Elders are the, the continuation of the ministry of the apostles. To shepherd the church and to help govern things. And you see the equality that even the elders had within church matters in Acts chapter 15. And if you turn there with me, we'll be skipping around in, verse, or in chapter 15 just so you can see this though. In chapter 15 beginning of verse 1, this is the council at Jerusalem. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some, and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. In verse 6, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by, my mouth, <clears throat> that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And he goes on. Now after he speaks, after James speaks and determines, here's what we need to do. We don't need to put a bigger burden on them than what is necessary. So we are going to tell them that they should abstain from eating things with blood, avoid fornication, things like that. And so it seemed good for everybody. Abstain from the things contaminated by idols. Abstain from fornication. Abstain from things that are, or what is strangled from the blood. And so then it's, it says in verse 22, Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send Antioch with Paul and Barnabas Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they're going to come with the orders from the council at Jerusalem. And when they come with the, the, the letter, it is the apostles and the brethren who are elders to the brethren at Antioch. And it goes on. The elders continue the ministry of the apostles. That's what they're there for. They're, they're there to shepherd the flock according to the teaching of the apostles. To take the teaching of the apostles, the teaching of the scriptures, and to continue this ministry, applying it to the church. Their function then is, is to continue the ministry of the apostles. And some of the things that we find as far as the ministry of the apostles is one, to protect the body of Christ. To protect the local church. That's why they're there. That's why the elders are given to the church. To protect the church. And you see a great example of that. In Acts chapter 20. Which Paul had shared with you. 
Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he says in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purposed, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Here the apostle is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he is giving them their function. This is your task. You are to watch out for the flock. You are to protect them. You are to guard against the false teachings that are out there. And that's one thing that Titus himself brings up. He talks about uh, those that, that follow after genealogies and myths and various things like that. Or the, the, um, the circumcision in verse 10. He says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. And the elders are established within the church in order to guard the church, to protect the church, recognizing the, the, that the church is precious in the sight of God, for he purchased it with his own blood. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, it is so valuable to him that he died for the church. And so the task then of the elders is to watch out for the church and to guard the church and to make certain that no false teachings come in among the people. They are there to protect against false teachers, to guard against the wolves. And it isn't just paganism as it was in the day of Titus. It wasn't just guarding uh, from the pagan teachings that were there within the cities. As Paul brings up, those are the circumcision that are causing problems too. Those that are those that claim to be religious, maybe even come under the umbrella of the Christian faith. How then can you guard against them if you don't have people set in place that are constantly looking? And listening and studying the word of God that they can protect the precious sheep of the Lord Jesus. Elders are needed to protect the body of Christ, to continue the ministry of the apostles. They are needed in order to teach the word of God. Look at verse 9. They say, Paul says, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort and sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The elders are there to teach you the word of God. To expound the word of God for you in such a way that it is very evident that this is what the word of God is saying. We talked a little bit about uh, preaching on Wednesday, preaching and teaching this past Wednesday night. And I'll share that with you again. Why do we emphasize expository preaching and teaching? Why do, we, why do we put such a strong emphasis that this is the proper way in order to expound the word of God for you? Because we recognize this and you should recognize this. That the man who stands behind the pulpit, whether it's me whether it's Jason, whoever stands here and expounds to you the word of God, there's that recognition that Christ is standing above the man. Christ is standing above the man. And this is Christ's word. 
And Christ is speaking to his people. And so, therefore, the man who expounds the word of God has no right to put in God's mouth and say what he didn't say or not say what he did say. You must get it right. Because there is that recognition. Christ is the one preaching to his people. Christ is the one leading you in worship. And so, the one who is aspiring to the office of elder... To teach, to preach, must be able to do that very thing and to rightly handle the word of God as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. They need to teach you what is true. To teach you what is right. Not teach you their opinions on things. Not teach you their convictions on things. And R.C. Sproul Jason had listened to a sermon by R.C. Sproul a while back and had shared it with me. And it was called The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. It's a very interesting name, isn't it? The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. And what he was going into was, was how Paul speaks of the weaker brother in 1 Corinthians. And that when a weaker brother gets into a position of leadership... What ends up occurring is that you end up having more legalism than you do sound teaching from the scripture. Because if he's the weaker brother and everything offends him, then he's going to put that across the board to everybody. So churches that, that would say to elders or deacons and they would make certain stipulations for them, no alcohol. No tobacco, no dancing, no TV. I don't really think either one of us dance, but, but if we did, it would be a no-no. But when they put certain stipulations on the elders or on the deacons that are not within the scripture, how does that happen? How does that occur? Because you have a weaker brother who ends up getting into a position of leadership who ends up putting out his convictions rather than biblical truth. And so when it comes to the elders, it shouldn't be necessarily that you're, you're choosing someone who just, who is a very polite, nice person and this, that, and the other, whatever, but that you are choosing men who are dedicated and committed to expound for you what God says. For any elder... Or any deacon. We're going to talk about deacons in the coming weeks too. They need to know the word of God. Because as they are ministering to you in your time of need. They need to know what the word of God says too. But they have nothing else to say apart from what this says. And that's, that's the stipulation that you need to hold on them. They have nothing else to say. Apart from what the word of God says and teaches. Because that's how you are equipped that's how you are prepared for the world. And that is indeed the very thing that, that, that they do as well is to equip the saints. Elders are to equip the saints. I want you to see this in Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> Looking at verse 4, or beginning of verse 4. <clears throat> The apostle says, there is one body and one spirit, 
Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Look at verse 7. But to each one, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Remember this. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the, heaven, far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Now in verse 7, the Apostle Paul establishes this truth that to each one, each one grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And in this context, as some other commentators have pointed out too, he's speaking of the gifts that are given to, the, to each individual. Your gifts, your calling is in view here. God has gifted you according to his purpose. So when it's speaking of this measure of grace that is given to you according to his gift, this is speaking of that. Your gift. But then he goes on to say this. This is your gift. You are gifted with uh, whatever calling from the Lord whether it's a teaching gift or a serving gift, as Peter puts them into those two categories. But then he goes on to say, and he gave some apostles and prophets. These are the foundations of the church. As Paul also points out in chapter 2. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We recognize that the, the office of apostle and prophet... Has ceased. It was the laying the foundation of the church. But what are the ones that continue? Evangelists. Pastors and teachers. Now evangelist is not one who has. Who goes around to churches all the time. Only having one sermon. It's the same thing over and over again. He's only called to certain revivals. And all of this sort of nonsense. An evangelist according to the biblical definition. Is a visiting preacher. He is one who is an expositor in the sense that he is expounding the word of God. He doesn't have just this great sermon to try to get people down to an altar, which there is no altar. We've talked about that. I don't even know what an altar is in a Baptist church. Maybe it's the steps. I don't know. But he has one sermon. That's not what an evangelist is. He is one who goes to different churches and sometimes in his own church and he preaches what the word of God says. And as MacArthur says, the meaning of the text is the text. You have nothing else to say apart from what it says. And that is true of evangelists. Then you have the pastors who are the shepherds and then you have the teachers and they are gifts to the church. That's what they're recognized as. When Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to men and the gifts that he has given to his church is not only apostles and prophets, but evangelists and pastors and teachers. The shepherds, the, the pastors, the teachers, they're gifts to the church. They're gifts to you. For this purpose, for the equipping of the saints, 
for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You have your gift and your calling that Christ has placed upon your life. And they are there to equip you. Now, equipping usually means to, to fix something that is broken or to supply something that is lacking. So when it comes to your particular gift, your calling on your life, the pastors and the teachers are gifts to you to fill up what is lacking, to supply to you what is lacking in your gift and in your calling. Then you may say, well, I don't really... That might be a little condescending. I don't feel like I'm you know, lacking in anything. I don't think any one of us would ever come out and say, I think I have it all figured out. And I think I have it all together. I don't need any instruction and I don't need any nurturing. I don't need any encouragement. I don't need any training in, in evangelism or training in righteousness from the word of God. I don't think I need any of that. I don't think any one of us would say that. No, not one of us would say, I have no need for accountability, cultivating holiness. As John Piper said, the leaders in a church are meant to make the saints servants. Because your gift that you are equipped with by the Holy Spirit of God is meant to edify the church. And so in that sense, you are serving the church, you're serving the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the elders and the teachers are there to help cultivate that in you. To supply what is lacking. And the elders are there to lead. To lead by example. And we're going to see some of those examples as we work our way through the rest of the passage. Really getting into it uh, next week. But think of how important that this is, as Paul has already been to this church or these churches, these cities. He's already preached the gospel. And this is Paul's order of ministry, if you will. If you look in Acts chapter 14, what does he do? He preaches the gospel. He begins discipleship. And it says in Acts chapter 14, he appoints elders in every city. And so the thing that was missing, the thing that needed to be supplied for these for these churches. As he says, that you would set in order what, what remains is defined as appoint elders in every city as I directed you for all these purposes. To be a blessing to you, the people of God. To lead by example, to guide you in righteousness. And there needs to be a plurality. Again, there needs to be a plurality. Not just one man trying to shepherd the people of God. As Paul had pointed out Wednesday, what if he gets it wrong? What he's teaching you? Who's there to hold him accountable? What if you have a weaker brother in the pulpit? Who's going to hold him accountable? That's why when the Jerusalem council gathered together, it wasn't just the apostles, but they're bringing the elders. They're bringing... All the leaders together because there's wisdom. There's wisdom when you have a plurality. And that's why a plurality is needed. The church was not meant to have one man as the pastor. And we recognize 
that there needs to be ruling elders, teaching elders, those who are all gifted for the teaching of God's word. I think Paul had went over that with you. So in a society, as Titus finds himself in a society of pagans and false teachers, some who claim to be of God, the certain men were tasked with guarding the congregation and teaching them to look at, to, to watch, to guard, to protect. And when the elders do this, it isn't to intrude in your life. It isn't to try to lord over you. Now, some do. Some pastors do. They want to lord over your life. They, want, they, they, they like power, perhaps, or whatever. That's not, that's not the task. As you read in verse 7, that the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. He is God's steward. This is what he is supposed to be. This is how he is to function as God's steward. So any authority that is ever delegated to the leadership of the church has to be in accordance with the word of God. And what is the authority that is given to the leadership within a church but to teach you and to lead you what God said? Nothing more. That's why they shouldn't be out for sordid gain. They shouldn't be trying to prey on the congregation in order to get money out of you. Or any of this other stuff to make their life better. Or to see it as an opportunity. It is a task that is given. In order that they would be faithful stewards of God's household. It says. One writer says rather. The elders manage the household of God. Recognizing that this, the church belongs to God. He says, they do not rule on their own terms, but in God's name and in accordance with God's word. In the ancient world, a steward was entrusted with the keys to his master's house, both to open the door and dispense its treasures. Likewise, elders are entrusted by Christ to grant admission into his church to, <clears throat> to grant admission into his church to believers and to minister God's grace through prayer, the sacraments, and especially the ministering of God's word. They are to do God's work in God's way for God's people with accountability to Christ for their faithfulness. It's to be done God's way. According to God's rules. As God has laid them out. That is the task of the elders. To be God's stewards. You know, it, uh, it reminds me of... Um, Paul Washer had said once in one of his sermons, he said, young man, God doesn't need your clever ideas. He needs you to do what is written. He's already figured it out. He's already got it planned. And we are to do what is written. Now, the process of how elders are appointed now, we don't just decide this one's going to be this or this one's going to be that. And you all just need to accept that. I had a guy come up to me probably two years, maybe three uh, of us being a church. Maybe just two years. And he came up one Sunday after church and he says, you know, I've been really thinking and praying. I, th I think I need to be the assistant pastor. 
you're, you're thinking to yourself, what? The assistant pastor? You think you need to be the assistant pastor? I've been praying about it. It's like, okay, well, when God tells me that, then we'll talk. But that's how it's done sometimes, isn't it? I think I need to be this. Okay, well, you're that. That's who you are. That's what we're going to do. The leadership of any church does not just come up with certain men and say, you're going to do this. You desire to do it. So you're going to do it. We'll put you in there. And we'll just announce it to the congregation. That's not how it's done. And I think one, one uh, passage of scripture that really gives us at least a pattern to follow is that of Acts chapter 6. When you have the establishing of deacons. Perhaps giving us that pattern. Now he tells Titus to appoint elders in every city. That is the task that is given. But in Acts chapter 6, I want you to see how this, this works out here. This is, of course, uh, speaking of deacons, but it does help to give us a pattern for the establishing of elders also. So in chapter 6, beginning of verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And just as an FYI, uh, we'll come back to this passage when we begin to talk about deacons in the coming weeks. So remember this, this portion of God's word. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, speaking to the congregation, select from among you, Seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these, brought, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid hands on them. This is how the deacons were installed in the church. We're talking about elders and deacons, official offices within the church. This is how the deacons were brought about. And they were brought about by the elders seeing a need, or you could, the apostles, seeing a need to have more, uh, more help within the congregation. And you think of the deacons are an extension of the elders in serving the people of God. So they saw a need, and so they say to the congregation, choose some men who have this kind of character. And the congregation is involved in this. They chose seven men, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. And they bring them before the apostles, and it was pleasing to the apostles, apparently because the apostles laid their hands on them and prayed. And so this is, this is giving us a pattern of how this is, is to be. Now, it could be that the congregation brings certain men up before the elders. Or it could be the elders seeing a need and saying, we have this particular one in mind or these in mind. And they bring it to the congregation and the congregation takes part in voting them in. 
Because the congregation has to recognize and to trust the men who are being put in order to serve them. It is necessary that the congregation be involved in the installation of elders and of deacons because if they are there in order to protect you and to lead you and to guide you, you must trust them. If you don't trust them, they cannot perform their duty. Now, a few things to look at as well back in Titus about the ones that are brought up before the congregation. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. And then he uses a different word in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach. Now the word elder is presbytos. The word overseer is episkopos. From these words you get Presbyterian or Episcopalian. It normally would convey someone who is, is older, has wisdom. But in the context of eldership within the New Testament, it is speaking of those who are spiritually mature. Who can rightly handle the word of God. And so in this sense, age isn't necessarily a factor. But they must be able to lead you into truth and to be an example of that truth. I really believe that when we first started, um, we were all you know, young, green, not knowing exactly what all we were doing. But you know, when you get so many years down the road and you begin to look back at all the things that we had went through as a new church. It was, it was just so many different things. Conflicts and deaths and, and being sued and all kinds of stuff that, that we had happen to us. And scratching our heads going, I wonder, what, what is all this? But perhaps because we were young and inexperienced, that God had placed within our path certain obstacles and trials and tribulations and all of that in order to equip us to be where we needed to be for the congregation as a whole. I really believe that. I believe that any conflicts and trials that go on within the church is also not just for the leadership to have something else to have to deal with, but through those conflicts, through those occurrences, to be an example as best as we can. That when this happens in life, you experience this in life, that God's grace can be with you because we all went through this together. And this is how we maintained our dignity and, our dignity and composure within uh, our faith. And so one who aspires to be an elder is chosen by the congregation who is one who can lead the congregation rightly in conflict and in suffering. Regardless of what may come, that they can keep the congregation focused upon the Lord 
and trusting and having confidence and not bringing reproach upon Christ's name for not handling it correctly. And you take part in this. Because as you come to know each other, and you see perhaps those that maybe God is raising up, you know the character. You see that in them. You've taken time with them. You, you, you get to know them as, as part of your faith family. And so when it comes up, if certain ones are chosen to deaconship or eldership, that the congregation already recognizes, yes, this one has already been performing the role in helping me in my life, and I trust them. That's why they have to be, that's why the apostle says to Titus, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. They need to be local. They need to be from the congregation. Now, there are times in which a pastor may be called to pastor another church. That happens. But, you know, a church really doesn't begin to trust its pastor until about three years in. Statistically speaking, could be quicker. But three to five years is when a congregation begins to trust its pastor. That's why there needs to be a plurality of elders. There needs to be shepherds that are already there from among the congregation that the congregation trusts. Because if they trust their shepherds that they know and that they have among them, then when a new guy comes in in order to lead... And these guys trust him that they will be more trusting of what he says from the pulpit. There was one guy who had uh, visited with us for a little while and would tell me every now and again, you know, um, I can help to uh, fill the pulpit if you need. And we really guard this place up here. We don't let just anybody up here. And so it would tend to um, maybe upset him a little bit that I would just say, well, thank you for that. And never say, well, let's plan for a Sunday. Because he would come across very abrasive to others and was not one who could shepherd the people of God with the word of God. People need to be able to trust who's standing here. Unfortunately, we have ran into an instance in which we had allowed one guy to uh, preach maybe, I don't know, probably about once a month, something like that. And we noticed that one particular family was never here whenever he would be behind the pulpit. And finally, after things had happened and this particular guy left, the, the particular family had come up to Jason and said, well, I had actually worked with him, and he, he's a bit of a scoundrel. And his words were, why didn't you say anything? We need to know that. That's why the congregation has to be involved when it comes to the appointment of elders and deacons, because you need to know who it is that's coming up here, and you need to trust them. So you need to know their character. And oftentimes, you know the character better than the leadership, because they are with you. So in the process of elders being put into every city, there needs to be a plurality and there need to be men that the congregation trusts, that you trust. Not just anybody placed up here. We don't decide that. Now, for those that are 
aspiring to be elders, maybe those that are chosen from the congregation in order to help continue the ministry of the apostles and to help guard and protect and all of this, we begin to see some of the characters, the characteristics rather, of the elders. And this is so important, this first one that is given. Maybe that's why it has that place of prominence in the list of characteristics. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you, namely, if any man is above reproach. It means to be blameless, irreproachable. Uh, and the word indicates a man who would not be open to attack or criticism in terms of, of his Christian life in general or in terms of the characteristics Paul goes on to name. Now, something to point out, this does not mean sinless. Obviously, this does not mean sinless. You cannot place that kind of a standard upon the elders. Because we struggle too. We struggle just like anyone else. And that's why we need your prayers. We need your encouragement. Your guidance at times. Because if we say we have no sin, we're a liar. But what this is referring to is generally speaking within the life of the one who is aspiring to be an elder, that there cannot be any open attack or criticism of anything blatantly occurring within their life. Especially in the things that are going to be mentioned here concerning the family. This is so important. He says, namely, if a man is above reproach, first thing, the husband of one wife. He needs to be above reproach in this area. Now, what does this mean? Could it mean he's denouncing polygamy? Good. It's possible. Uh, we know that uh, in in the times of the ancient ancient times that uh, people would have multiple wives. Sorry, women, you only get one. But the guys can have multiple. Uh, we know that that was a practice. That is denounced in Scripture, by the way. That could be in view to say the husband of one wife. Probably not. Does it mean that the one who aspires to be elder could never have been married and divorced before? That's a very popular view. And in fact, there are churches who are very adamant that if you've ever been married and divorced, you can never serve in any office within the church, especially in the role of pastor. Is that what's in view? No. Because the scripture makes provision for when this can occur. And there's not anything within this text that Paul says to define what he's meaning here to say the husband of one wife, meaning you could never have been divorced. He doesn't say that. So no, that's not in view either. You know, sadly, there was a gentleman that we had went to Bible college with. And at the time, he was either filling in as pastor, or maybe he was pastor, I can't remember. But his wife decided that she was going to leave him and run off with another man. This was an unwanted divorce on his part, 
And regardless of what he did, she was gone. And the church forced him to step down as pastor because he would have to go through the process of divorce. That's not what's in view. What does this mean? To be the husband of one wife. You know, there's this idea too. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this too. That uh, if you get divorced and you get remarried, that you are in a perpetual state of adultery because God sees you still married to this first person. That's a no. And in fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 24, if you divorce someone and she goes and marries another and he divorces her, she cannot go back to her first husband. So obviously that's not in view. What does this mean? The husband of one wife. It really just means to be a one woman man. A one woman man. That you are completely devoted to your wife. That's what it means. He is devoted to his wife. You know, as the scripture says in 1 Peter chapter 3, to live with your wives in an understanding way and to show her honor, to lift her up. What is it meaning? It's meaning that the husband is to, to cherish her, to treat her as a person, a person of special worth. He is to value his wife and to have eyes only for her. That's what it means. You don't have someone who is married who complains all the time because they're married. Who don't want to be married. And they have wandering eyes for everything else that has two legs. He is devoted to his wife. And her only. And he cherishes her. He values her. He comes alongside of her and he thanks God for her. That's what's in view here. Not divorce. Not polygamy. But that this man is devoted to his wife. It doesn't matter if the person is, is capable of teaching the word of God. That they can teach it in a way that people can understand. If they are not devoted to their wife. Then they should be excluded. From being brought into whether deacon or elder. Because their first priority is their home. That's their first priority. Which goes on to the second thing. A husband of one wife. That's the first characteristic. Having children who believe. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now what does that mean? Children who believe. What if your children don't believe? Can you even control that? No you can't. It is God who calls. It is God who regenerates. It's God who elects. We recognize that. We know that. What do you do with an infant? Well, I can't, I can't serve as pastor because I have a baby. And obviously they can't express faith. So in this particular state, they're or maybe a toddler. What do you do with your kids up until they're able to make a profession of faith? What do you do? So what is in view? 
One writer says this, We're not necessarily looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but at the character of the family as a whole. Does the man who is aspiring to be elder, does he manage his house well? Whether his children are believing or they're not, you pray for that. You, you pray that God would save your children. But does he manage the household well? Meaning that they are in subjection to him. He doesn't provoke them to anger. He doesn't provoke them in such a way that they rebel. But he, he tries to nurture and to care for his children. And he loves his children. He's, de he's, he's devoted to his children. Their salvation, on the other hand, is, is in the hands of the Lord. But they have a general belief following in the faith of their father. That's what's in view. Only God can regenerate. But this is really bringing out for us that the one who is aspiring to manage the household of God, he needs to be able to manage his own household first and to cherish his wife and his children. They are his flock first above anybody else. When it comes into the list of priorities, it is first off the Lord, then it is his wife, then it is his children, and then the church comes thereafter with his ministry. He must be devoted. And so that then means that he cannot neglect his family for the sake of the church. And you shouldn't expect that. You should not expect any pastor or deacon to neglect their family for another person's family. That is his first priority. That's his flock at home. That he is to love and to nurture. And when it comes about that you neglect them. You're not fulfilling what God has intended in your life. This isn't just true of elders or deacons. This is true of you. Of your calling and whatever it is that God has gifted you with in order to edify the church. Your calling does not come before your family. Ever. Your first priority is to cherish your family. To love your family. Now. This is. The standard here is pretty high. And there are times in which we fail. It is one in one sense. Kind of humbling, very humbling. To just look at the rest of this list, not only what begins in verse five on, but to recognize that this is what every believer should aspire to. And yet looking at these, I, I can recognize my own failures and faults. Failures and faults that I have done in my own life of not valuing my wife as I should have or my children and governing them as I should have. There have been times that I've made some big mistakes. Mistakes that I truly and genuinely regret, but they happen. I wish I could take back. But regardless of the failures that we have, the failures that come, what we are then to do is to be an example 
of starting again, starting new, not remaining in whatever it is that has happened and wallowing in that self-pity or whatever, but to start again and to start right. To first love your family, to love your children. There's been times I've had to go to my own kids and say, I'm sorry. I didn't handle it right. I didn't speak to you right. What I did was wrong. And you have to be the example in order to, to make things right when they go wrong. And then to start again. But for anybody who is desiring leadership, that it must first be that he loves and cherishes his own family. And you need to hold him accountable to that. It's easy to, to have things, you know, we, we're very self-serving at times, and sometimes we don't mean to be. But we need to, to keep that in mind, that, that his first priority as, as my pastor, as my deacon, his first priority is his own family. And I need to make sure and hold him accountable that he's doing that. And not to try to lure him away for my sake. If he manages his household well. And you see the love and the commitment that he has for his wife and his children. Then you can rest assured that the love and the commitment that he would have to you. Will be as it should be. That any elder and deacon will genuinely love you and care for you and seek to come alongside you to, to further you along in your gift or to further you along in your walk with Christ and to be there when you need them for the encouragement. But you recognize that first by how he manages his own house. That's why that is so important. Not something to just gloss over. But to recognize that this is of first importance and that's why he put it here. There's been those within our own family who neglect their spouses for the sake of their ministries. And it always ends badly. First priority is family and children. And that's what you need to hold them accountable to. Now looking at all this. We're talking about elders. How does that necessarily pertain to everyone? Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman. The characteristics that you see within the devotion to the family and these other characteristics that come after, though they are indeed to be put there for the elders and the deacons, they are characteristics that every believer should aspire to. Not just to place it upon the leadership of the church and say, well, that's your job. You should be doing this. And not allowing this same standard to be placed upon you. To aspire to, to have this, these characteristics evident in your own life. To show that commitment to your own family. To love what is good. To be not self-willed, not quick-tempered. 
None of the other things that we find here but to hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to sound teaching. That is for every believer. And can you do it? Yes, you can. You can do it. You know how you can do it? Because you have the Spirit of God in you that enables you to do it. That's why you pray and you ask God to help you with this. Don't just settle for how things have always been. I hate that saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. If he's a believer, if she's a believer, she better be learning more. He better be learning more. That's one of the things with Reformed theology we have, or we say we, they, they have that motto, whoever came up with it, Semper Reformanda, always reforming, always growing. And that should be every one of our mottos. We're always growing. We're always learning. We're always seeking to do what is right in the eyes of God. We're always seeking to be above reproach as best as we can as sons and daughters of the great king. So as we work our way through this in the coming weeks to finish this out and also refer to deacons. What should we be looking for in the deacons? Very similar characteristics as we find here with the elders. As we do so, we need to see these characteristics not just as what I need to look for, but what I personally need to pray to God to help me to aspire to. This isn't just for deacons and elders. This is for every one of us. So in the coming weeks as we go over this, pray and ask God to help you as we learn these in order to apply them to our life, that he would indeed be pleased with all of us in our homes and in the life of the church. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you once again for this portion of your word. And thank you, Father, that you have gifted the church with those who can care for us, to protect us, to be involved in, in nurturing us in our gifts, in our callings. We see these characteristics, and Father, they are difficult to, to hold. They're, they're difficult to perform. But let us see that if we seek to do this on our own, indeed we will fail. But move within our hearts that we would pray and continually pray that you would help us to carry these out and to make these evident in our life. This is what we all should aspire to, to be imitators of God as beloved children. Help us, Father, and we can't do it without you. And for what we have learned today, we pray that the Spirit of God would apply and that we would be nurtured by it and that in the days to come, we will know exactly what we need to look for in our leaders. That we would be good stewards, Father. We love you and we thank you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen.